You're listening to the Calvary Presbyterian Church Podcast. Do any of you know someone like Peter? You know, the impulsive, verbally processing, unfiltered friend who is amazing in so many ways, but gets it so wrong so often. You can't think of the Peter in your life. Could you possibly be him? I'll let you just sit with that for a bit. But don't get me wrong, Peter is fantastic. He is an amazing complement and foil to this Jesus whom we witness in the Gospel of Mark. And I wonder with the fast-paced nature of Mark's Gospel, if the author understood Peter's slightly brash and overexcited personality. Now, I really respect Peter because I could never be Peter. I tend to be more careful and a bit more measured with my words. I like to ease into a thought, try it on for size, and then kind of test it out before sharing it with the public. Not always, of course. Some of you have heard me say some things. But generally, that is my preferred way of going about in the world, but not Peter. In these 20 or so verses we read today, he is all over the place. He's like, oh, oh, Jesus, I know the answer. You're the Messiah. And then he's like, stop saying that, Jesus. And then he's like, let's stay here. This is great. Dude, take it easy. Now, because I am not a Peter and tend to play it safe, I will likely never be told to get behind me, Satan. But then, I will probably never be the one to utter some of the most profound words in Scripture, declaring you, Jesus, are the Messiah. Peter is both transcendent, understanding the nature of Jesus so deeply, and a bumbling fool who is focused all too much on what Jesus calls human things. It's an interesting division to make divine things versus human things, especially because wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ is both the human and the divine. I often say in education classes that Jesus isn't half human, half God. It's not 50-50. He is fully human and fully God, 100% both, and the math simply doesn't add up. So on the one hand, if anyone has a say on what is considered human and what is considered divine, it would be Jesus. But on the other hand, if anyone could know how much the two can become intertwined, you'd think it'd be Jesus. So what is human and what is divine? According to our passage today, Speaking honestly about the possibility of suffering, rejection, and resurrection are divine. But wanting to find another way out is human. Following Jesus and being willing to lose it all is divine. But seeking profit and gain are human. Being willing to go back down the mountain and face the world below is divine. But wanting to stay up on that mountaintop and build dwellings there is human. Transfiguration, 
is divine. Fear is human. Now, that's not to say Jesus was never afraid. After all, he was human. But it is to say that in spite of his fear, or because of it, he could practice being brave. Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. For Jesus, God's kingdom, the good news of the gospel, liberation and healing, which is often translated as salvation in our scripture, those were more important to him than the fear he felt as one embodied in human form. The juxtaposition of transfiguration and fear, that which is human and divine, captured me this week in my reading of scripture. This strange word, transfiguration, is not the same thing as transformation. Transformation is when someone or something is changed or remade, like Allison said, caterpillar to butterfly. Transfiguration, on the other hand, implies a revelation of one's true nature. Jesus is not changed on the mountaintop. Rather, he is known and revealed for who he truly is. Transfiguration, then, is an uncovering, a stripping away of pretense and misunderstanding. There is a vulnerability in that moment of transfiguration to be seen and so obviously visible for who you actually are exposes us in ways that we are not quite used to. Ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, we have been a people who are good at hiding. But transfiguration does not allow us to hide anymore. Jesus is revealed to those with him on the mountaintop. And who is this Jesus that is revealed? Jesus is the one in whom humanity and divinity meet, where God becomes flesh and dwells among us. On this first transfiguration day, a voice from the cloud says, this is my son, my beloved. These are the same words that are spoken over him at his baptism in Mark's first chapter. And friends, these are the same words spoken over us at our baptisms and whenever we are uncovered for who we truly are. At the core of all our pretense, when our fears and masks are stripped away, when our true nature is revealed, we are all simply children of God, called and claimed by a God who says, you, you, you are my child, my beloved. There is nothing you have done or left undone that could make this more true or less true. In God, we find an unconditional love. And 1 John 4, 18 reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
To love is divine, but to fear is human. And within each of us is the capacity for both. Guillermo del Toro, a Mexican filmmaker of all people, once said, I think when we wake up in the morning, we can choose between fear and love every day. And every morning, if you choose one that doesn't define you until the end, it's important that we choose love over fear because love is the answer. Friends, it is human nature to feel afraid, but it is divine to choose love anyway. Now, as God's beloved children, when we choose love, we choose justice for our neighbors and peace for the world. After all, as Cornell West said, justice is what love looks like in public. Knowing we are secure in God's love as God's children, we should then be able to offer that kind of acceptance and belonging to others. But we're not always so great at that, are we? We're human, after all. And fear, pride, the hunger for power often win over all that is divine. Marianne Tolbert in her commentary in Mark cautions us in this section, noting that in verse 34, we are told to, quote, take up the cross. She writes, by taking this requirement of suffering for Jesus' followers out of context of Mark's gospel message as a whole, some Christians have supposed that it is God's will for them to suffer, and that, consequently, they should not work against the oppression of that of others. This interpretation has been especially damaging to women and third world populations colonized by Western Christians. Read within its own understanding of the story of Jesus, Mark's emphasis on suffering does not provide a basis for Christian masochism, but instead a hope for future liberation. The notion of a suffering servant is often romanticized, but Jesus was the suffering servant so that we wouldn't have to be. We bear the cross with Christ and with one another. We should not be burdening each other with crosses heavier than necessary. After all, even Jesus got help carrying his cross. So this passage is not a call to suffering or an excuse for allowing others to suffer. Rather, it is the reality we will face when we are committed to live as the children of God, as we work together to help end suffering for all people once and for all, we must take up that cross and follow Jesus. Because in this state of already, not yet, in this world that is already redeemed, but still being made whole, all that is human and all that is divine mixed together in well, let's be honest, a holy mess that is our lives. Nothing is perfect. But rest assured in knowing that love doesn't require us to be perfect. Our broken, confused humanity is loved fully and wholly, 
by the divine. And perhaps it's not so much true that what is human is the polar opposite of what is divine anyway. Instead, even in our humanity, we all carry a spark of the divine, not like Jesus in the fully human, fully divine kind of way. We are not Jesus, thank goodness. But in that imago Dei kind of way where we recognize, understand, and accept that we are all created in the image of God. So perhaps the story of transfiguration for us today is about being able to see the divine and the holy that resides in us all. About recognizing that we are all created in the image of God and if we are willing, then each and every one of us can shine light into the world that is holy and transformative, even dazzling and able to reveal the true nature of us all as God's beloved. We shine our light when we respond with kindness. We shine our light when we show up for those who are grieving or in pain. We shine our light when we bake or cook a meal for others. We shine our light when we assure others that they are not alone in the darkness. We shine our light when we speak out against war and occupying forces. The Bay Area has seen its share of blackouts this week. Anyone lose power during the storms? Some of you? So perhaps we've learned anew how just a little bit of light can make a big difference. How that little glow of a cell phone can keep you from tripping over toys in the living room. Just me? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us how powerful even just a little light can be. Affirming that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So shine your light. Even if it doesn't seem all that strong or powerful enough to drive out all that is hateful or harmful because a little bit of light goes a long way and it is, it is the only thing that can overcome all that is harmful and hateful in this world. And recognize the light in others because together our light can be dazzling and transcendent. So may transfiguration be for us, not just one sacred day in the church, but a way of life, a way of seeing and knowing and uncovering God in all things as we let our lights shine. Thanks be to God. Amen. Join us for worship every Sunday at Calvary Presbyterian Church on Fillmore Street in San Francisco or watch our live stream at calprez.org slash worship.